Law and Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Come on in. Make yourselves comfortable. Welcome to the Law of Self-Defense News and Q&A show, the first of the new year, January 7th, 2021. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca. Thank you very much. Very, very kind of all of you. Uh, for those who may be new to these shows, we do them live just about every Thursday, 4 p.m. We did take a break over the holidays, but now we're back on schedule for 2021. So every Thursday, we do these open access, free law, self-defense news and Q&A shows. It's the only content we produce each week that is open access. Most of our content is limited to our law of self-defense members except for this show. And of course we use this as an opportunity to expose more of you to what we do at law of self-defense, which is provide plain English uh, analysis of use of force events from a legal perspective based on actual law. Uh, the law of self-defense law practice does nothing but use of force cases, meaning self-defense defense of others and defense of property. We don't have a generalized criminal uh, defense practice. We don't do DWIs, shoplifting, anything like that. Only use of force law, and we've had that focus for uh, getting darn close to 30 years now. Um, so this is our open access show. I do encourage you to mark your calendar so you never miss it. We do it live both on Facebook uh, as well as for our members at the Law of Self-Defense Membership dashboard for those members. And we do make replays, recorded replays of this available on Facebook, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash law of self-defense on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash law of self-defense. And of course, again, on the law of self-defense blog at law of self-defense.com. Now this is only a small fraction of the tremendous amount of content that we produce uh, every week. Again, most of that is for our members, but to give you a taste of the kinds of topics we covered just in the past week, just since Monday, uh, let me see if I can pull that down. Try that again. Uh, this past Monday, we had an analysis of the Tamir Rice case. What I say here is the Tamir Rice fraud. Uh, this is the fraud that the police were not legally justified in shooting Tamir Rice. You may be familiar. He was a 12-year-old, 12-year-old, shocking, I know, in Cleveland, Ohio, who was shot by police. Um, we explain in this blog post why that shooting was completely legally justified under the actual circumstances of that case. Uh, by the way, if you didn't know, 12-year-old Tamir Rice stood almost six feet tall and weighed 200 pounds, uh, just as one material fact in that case that's rarely shared by the media. Uh, then the following day, we shared some great news, and that is that Ohio has become the nation's 37th stand-your-ground state. They've been making this effort for a number of years without success, but this week on Monday, the governor finally signed the Stand Your Ground legislation into law. The legislature had successfully passed uh, Stand Your Ground before, but it had always been vetoed by the governor. Now it is law in Ohio. Even better, it's the hard variety of Stand Your Ground rather than the soft variety. If you're not familiar with that distinction, uh, well, then I would suggest you become a law self-defense member so you know what these 
things mean, they can be pretty important. As some bonus content following up on that, uh, we decided to provide a list to our members of the remaining 13 duty to retreat states. Uh, Some of these are states you would expect, like Massachusetts and New York. Others are states that you might find surprising, like North Dakota and Arkansas, although I will say that Arkansas has been making um, the same kind of effort as Ohio the last several years to get Stand Your Ground passed. They're doing it again this year, so hopefully Arkansas will be the next Stand Your Ground state. And then just today, just a few minutes ago, uh, this was scheduled for yesterday, but we had a water pipe break at Law Self-Defense Headquarters. No, not like the uh, Georgia election water pipe break. This was a real water pipe break. Um, not too bad. I do a little plumbing myself, had it fixed in an hour, but it did soak all of our camping gear. So that cleanup took more time than I would have liked. So we didn't get this post out yesterday, but we did get it out this morning to all our members. And it's another one of these uh, police shoot black man because they're racist hoaxes. Uh, This time, the case of Jacob Blake, the lie being that Jacob Blake was simply there to break up a fight between two women and was completely unarmed when shot by police. Uh, In fact, Jacob Blake uh, was violating restraining order being at that scene because he had Uh, The victim, the victim who called the police in this instance as well, um, committed sexual assault. He had a felony warrant out for his arrest on that and other charges. Uh, He was attempting to steal this woman's car. He violently resisted arrest. Uh, Tasers were ineffective. And he clearly, unambiguously, uh, was armed with a knife. No question about that. Um, But if you listen to social media, you'd never know that. In fact, just yesterday, the Washington Post posted a tweet uh, saying that uh, they were shocked, apparently, that uh, charges were not going to be brought against these officers because Jacob Blake was unarmed when they shot him. Another lie, another hoax. So let's get back to today. Uh, So that's the kind of stuff we do just about every day at Law Self-Defense for our members. If you think you might be interested in that kind of content, the good news is it's really cheap. In fact, to try it out, it's really, really cheap. that is, you can get a Law Self-Defense trial membership for only $0.99 cents for two weeks, folks. And there's a 200% money-back guarantee on that. Uh, so if you'd like to try us out, two weeks, $0.99, cents, negative risk proposition. Um, and we can make this offer because virtually nobody who signs up as a member ever leaves. Thank you for your support, all of you members. Uh, you can try that out at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. 99 cents to try it out. Even at the normal price, it's only about a quarter a day to be a member of Law Self-Defense. And if you decide you don't like it at any time, you can always cancel. That's the end of your commitment. Uh, So if this is content in which you're interested, I would encourage you to give that a shot, lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. So what we'll do in today's show is the first part, we'll cover some news items that have been in the news. There hasn't been that much news, at least in terms of the normal rate of news the last couple of weeks. Because of the holidays and the media, like everybody else, are home for the holidays. Uh, And when they're home, for some reason, there's no news, uh, which makes one wonder if the media is really reporting news or creating news much of the time. But in any case, there hadn't been that much to talk about. But nevertheless, what little has been happening has accumulated over the last couple of weeks. So we can share those news events with you now uh, in today's show. And then we'll dive into the questions that have been sent in to us by our Law Self-Defense members, by non-members who emailed them in. And time permitting, we can answer your questions um, live during the show here today. Uh, I am 
I've made a commitment this year to keep these shows to no more than an hour, folks. So when we get close to that hour, uh, we will be signing off. The, the These hour-plus shows are just too much. But having said all that, before we get to the substance, I do have to mention, of course, our sponsor – which is CCW Safe. CCW Safe is a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. They, in effect, promise to pay their members legal expenses if their members involved in a use of force event. And those legal expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. Uh, for example, imagine a case where you were threatened, you displayed your gun, you didn't fire a shot, didn't hurt anybody. And now you find yourself charged with aggravated assault with a firearm, typically a 10-year, sometimes a 20-year felony. And if you're charged with aggravated assault with a firearm, you're looking at a retainer to your lead counsel on the order of thirty dollars to $50,000. And that's just for pretrial work, folks. That's not even for trial expense. If it's a killing case where you're charged with manslaughter or murder, you're easily looking at $100,000 or $200,000 pretrial expense and just multiply that for the trial itself. So if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in your mattress, just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be useful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the resources you need to fight the legal battle the way you want it fought, as if your life depended on it, because really it does. And that's what CCW Safe offers to do for its members. Now, there are several companies out there that offer similar services. I've looked at all of them, as you might imagine. I found that CCW Safe is the best fit for me personally. I'm a member of CCW Safe. My wife, Emily, is a member of CCW Safe. One of the biggest reasons I favored CCW Safe over other similar offerings is that many of those others simply don't provide the level of resources you need for an adequate legal defense. If you're looking at a quote unquote self defense insurance offer, that caps out at 150000 or 250000 for criminal legal defense, and many of them do, sometimes not even that much, that's simply not enough for a murder or manslaughter trial if you've killed someone in necessary self-defense. In contrast, CCW Safe promises to pay what the defense costs, period, with no such cap. So read the fine print, folks, and understand what you're getting and not getting from any quote-unquote self-defense insurance you're considering. Now, having said that CCW Safe is the best fit for me, whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do encourage you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member of CCW Safe, you can save 10% off your membership at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10. Okay, folks, let's dive into some of these news items now. Uh, I'll just touch on these briefly. I have half a dozen or so, but I only want to spend a minute or two on each one. Uh, And just to kind of, um, these were just news stories that were of interest to me, not necessarily major events. Um, One involved, and all these news stories, by the way, will be hyperlinked in the text version of today's show, uh, which you'll be able to find at um, the lawofselfdefense.com blog, lawofselfdefense.com slash blog. We'll take you there, there uh, and we'll leave that open access for uh, for all of you who may not be members. So the first news item that caught my eye um, in, over the last couple of weeks was a mother seeking charges against police officers um, who shot her son. Now, they shot her son during a traffic stop, which he fled. Um, they killed him. Um, and their justification is, well, we shot him because he 
presented as a deadly force threat to us and the public in general. Uh, now, did he have a weapon? Uh, well, he didn't have a gun or a knife that he threatened them with, but he had the car and they had reason to believe that he was drunk as a skunk. That's why they pulled him over in the first place. And in fact, after the fact, autopsy would show he had a blood alcohol level of 0.138. Uh, in most states, folks, uh, driving while intoxicated or driving while impaired requires merely 0.08. So he's approaching double the limit for driving while intoxicated. 0.138 is a pretty high intoxication level. Um, so the question then is, well, if someone, if someone were using a car maliciously, intentionally, as a weapon to run people over, we'd certainly call that deadly force, right? Um, now, arguably, as a drunk driver, he's, he, his goal is not to run people over and kill them. But nevertheless, does he not present an imminent deadly force threat to the public by driving around in a car at point one three eight? Um, especially when he's non-responsive, non-compliant with being pulled over, with his behavior being stopped. So they pulled him over, and then he fled the scene at speed. That's what resulted in the shooting. Um, so it always comes back to the same principles, folks, those same five elements of a claim of self-defense, innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. I don't want to dive into them overly deeply right now, uh, but if any of you are new to the show or not familiar with those concepts, I urge you to download our free infographic. These are the five elements that are the building blocks of any justified use of force claim, folks. If you don't understand these five elements and they apply in all 50 states, uh, if you don't understand these five elements, you can't possibly understand self-defense law. Uh, so we make this infographic available for free. It provides a brief description of each of those five elements. Uh, so you have at least that fundamental working knowledge. Again, it's free. It doesn't cost a penny. It's a PDF download, and you can get that at lawselfdefense.com slash elements. But these apply to every use of force scenario under American use of force law, no matter what state you're in, and it applies to this scenario too. And the fundamental question is, uh, well, did the police who used this force against this young man, this highly intoxicated driver, did they have a reasonable perception that he presented an unlawful, eminent, deadly force threat to themselves or to others? If the answer to that is yes, they had that reasonable perception, then their use of deadly defensive force as in the form of self-defense and defense of others would be legally justified. Um, and it's not hard to see an argument here where someone driving around um, at speed, uh, uh, you know, uh, fleeing from lawful uh, stop and arrest with a blood alcohol level of 0.138 would present to the officers and the public an imminent deadly force threat. Even if that wasn't his particular intent, even if his intent was only to escape, uh, the danger of death or serious bodily injury nevertheless is there. Another interesting case that caught my eye, the headline has to do with no-knock warrants. So Georgia apparently is considering doing away with no-knock warrants. Another, A number of other states have already done this. Florida's done this, uh, three or four other states. Uh, and those of you who have been for a while members of the law of self-defense community well no i'm no fan of no-knock warrants i, I think in, they have um, a genuine legitimate purpose in the very narrow scope of cases uh, but they're used much more broadly than that scope and i think the 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 juice is not worth the squeeze i think the negatives vastly outweigh the positives for almost all no-knock warrants uh, most of them are used in drug cases to try to keep uh, the suspects from flushing drugs down the toilet, for example. Um, I'm no big fan of the war on drugs either. I think 
that juice isn't worth the squeeze either. Uh, but that's a separate issue, obviously. Uh, but the, the kind of cases I imagine where it would be justified, where there would be exigent circumstances justifying a no-knock entry might be a kidnapping case, for example, where you don't want to give the kidnapper notice that you're there uh, to kick in the door because then they'll kill the kidnapped victim, right? Or at least that would be the concern. Uh, but that's rare uh, where no-knock warrants are. Most no-knock warrants are not used in that kind of what I would argue would be a legitimate scenario. So a lot of people are fed up with these no-knock warrants. Sometimes police go to the wrong home. Uh, a gunfight ensues with perfectly law-abiding people for no good reason. Um, so I can certainly see the public policy arguments against no-knock warrants. I do I do have to say that I, I find it unfortunate that most of these prohibitions of no-knock warrants don't have that exception for things like kidnap cases. That that would be a much more well-thought-out uh, limitation on no-knock warrants than the kind of general bans that I tend to see. But nevertheless, can't expect too much from the legislature. But what caught my eye really about this Georgia no-knock warrant article uh, was not so much the no-knock warrant part, but as an additional component to this legislation, uh, they're also looking to make a drastic change to Georgia citizens' arrest law. Um, and their argument is, hey, our citizens' arrest law is overly broad. It was drafted in the mid-1800s, a different era, before there were professional police departments in most places where the citizens were expected to be the law enforcement in their community. They needed that power of arrest, and the, and the law gives them a very broad power of arrest, just basically a reasonable suspicion that um, a felony may have been committed or a crime was committed in their presence is sufficient for them to make a lawful arrest of another citizen. And that law is no longer appropriate in modern times. And I would suggest that's a pretty good position. I think I would be inclined to make that argument myself. But what's interesting about that argument is that the people making it feel it needs to be made. And I think one of the reasons they feel it needs to be made, after all, the mid-1800s was a long time ago, folks. It was over 150 years ago. And they're only talking about changing Georgia, Georgia citizens' arrest law now, constraining it uh, now. Well, the reason they are, of course, is because of the Ahmaud Arbery case and the McMichaels and this uh, – uh, Roddy Bryan, um, who pursued um, Ahmad Arbery after they saw him or were alerted to him apparently committing a felony burglary of a residence and then fleeing the scene. Uh, they pursued him. They were armed. Uh, they got out of their truck. Arbery ran at them, fought Travis McMichael for a shotgun, got killed in the process. And now the McMichaels are being charged, not with murder. Uh, no one seems willing to argue that they intentionally wanted to murder Ahmad Arbery but with felony murder predicated on unlawful imprisonment. Um, and of course, the defense is going to be, hey, we were doing a lawful citizen's arrest. And if you look at Georgia citizen's arrest law, uh, because it is so broad, there's a very good argument to be made that they were making a lawful citizen's arrest. Now, we might all agree that it was a bad idea, stupid thing to do, it shouldn't be allowed, the law should be different, all that. But that's not what matters on the merits of this particular case, because to McMichaels, like any of us, if we were defendants in a criminal trial, are entitled to be judged by the laws as they existed at the time we engaged in the conduct for which we're being prosecuted. And it's probably the case that the McMichaels were well within the legal boundaries of Georgia citizens' arrest law. And I think people looking at this case are increasingly, whether regardless of which side they're on, but especially if they're on the pro-prosecution side, are looking at this case and saying, wow, we have, we're really vulnerable on this. 
maybe there's nothing we can do about that, but we better change this Georgia citizens arrest law for the future. In other words, their efforts to change it suggest to me that they recognize that it's broad enough that it may well legitimize the McMichael's conduct in this case and frankly lead to an acquittal at trial, uh, which obviously from their narrative perspective is undesirable, but nevertheless on the legal merits, uh, it's a very robust argument from my perspective. Uh, I'll mention also that uh, Kentucky is also considering getting rid of no-knock warrants to get back to the no-knock warrant uh, topic, uh, largely because of the Breonna Taylor case. Uh, Breonna Taylor, of course, was uh, visiting with her appears-to-be drug-dealing boyfriend when the police made a, uh, you know, they had a no-knock warrant, but they did, in fact, knock. There are witnesses from adjoining uh, residences who heard them announce themselves. Um, but in any case, the, they were fired upon by the drug-dealing boyfriend inside the apartment. They returned fire. One of those rounds struck and killed Breonna Taylor. Uh, so now there's that's driving an impetus for Kentucky to do away with no-knock warrants as well. I mean, on the merits, I don't see what difference it would have made because the police did, in fact, announce themselves in this instance. But nevertheless, um, there we go. And again, I'm not a particular fan of no-knock warrants, so I don't have much trouble with that. Um Another uh, news story touched upon the Ahmaud Arbery case again, and that is the McMichaels lawyers are um, asking the judge, they're not a trial yet, these are all pre-trial proceedings, uh, they're asking the trial judge before the trial starts to prohibit the prosecution from referring to Ahmaud Arbery as a victim uh, in this case. Um, now, it's an understandable request from the defense because, of course, their position is that their clients were the victims. Their clients were the victim of Ahmad Arbery's attack. And by calling Ahmad Arbery the victim, or if they allow the prosecution, if the judge allows the prosecution to call Ahmad Arbery the victim, or profoundly, it's as if the court is undercutting their defense itself, uh, which seems inappropriate. Of course, in normal parlance, uh, if you read an appellate court decision about any use of force event, they do refer to the person against whom the force was used as the victim. But those are always, by definition, cases in which the defendant got convicted at trial. So he argued self-defense and got convicted. So he lost. Um, and now he's appealing his conviction. And once you're convicted, you're no longer presumed innocent. You're presumed guilty. But at the trial level, it would seem reasonable to make the argument that, hey, until they've been adjudicated guilty, they're presumed innocent. And as long as they're presumed innocent, we don't know who was the victim. That's the open question. That's why we're having the trial. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is not just for that point, for that particular case, uh, but to remind everybody that this pre-trial stuff sounds like it would be boring and administrative, but folks, this is where the legal battlefield is being defined. What you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, what evidence is admissible, what evidence is not, what experts will come in, what experts won't, um, what uh, pre-existing knowledge will be admissible and what pre-existing knowledge won't be admissible, what's relevant and not relevant, will the character of the person who attacked you, their criminal record, will that be admitted before the jury? Because remember, whatever is not admitted the jury never sees or hears. And if they don't see it or hear it, it cannot inform their decision-making and coming to a verdict. So this is where the playing field, this is where the battlefield is being defined. It's in these pre-trial hearings. Uh, so they're not only important, in some senses, they're everything. I mean, because they decide what you're able to do. It's like um, defining your army before you go into battle. Um, you want your army to have particular characteristics, numbers, weapons, capabilities, and so forth. And that's what's being decided in these boring administrative pretrial hearings. Everything. 
Um, and if you gave me control over the pretrial hearing process, I'd win every case because I'd make sure to define the battlefield in the way most favorable to me. Now, of course, in the American legal system, we have an adversarial process. We have the prosecution demanding things favorable to it and objecting to things favorable to the defense. The defense is doing the reverse and the judge is making those uh, judgment calls, obviously, uh, about those uh, demands and objections, hopefully within the what's normally a fairly well-defined framework of what's allowed for evidentiary purposes and so forth. So, another interesting story uh, involved Kyle Rittenhouse. Of course, Kyle Rittenhouse was um, another Kenosha case. Uh, He uh, defended himself against uh, a mob attack in Kenosha. Three particular individuals attempted to uh, apparently or actually kill him. Uh, He successfully defended himself against those attacks. Uh, Now he's charged with um, various degrees of murder and other use of force felony offenses, um, for that defensive conduct, and he's going off the trial. Um, now, we mentioned early on, trials are expensive, especially if you've killed someone. A killing case easily spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. And one of the things the Rittenhouse family has sought to do, uh, as anybody might seek to do, if suddenly they find themselves facing hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal expenses, um, which if they fail at raising, it grossly increases the chances they'll spend the rest of their life in a cave cage. Uh, they sought to raise funds in innovative ways in this particular way by selling merchandise on the internet, free Kyle t-shirts, free Kyle hats, that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, I don't expect you'd raise a ton of money that way, but you do what you can when you're in difficult circumstances. Well, the online stores that were carrying this product so people could go online and buy it, uh, decided to stop selling that stuff. They decided they don't want to carry it. It's too controversial a case. Um, The reason I mention this, folks, is to remind you all again of what the costs of these cases can be like. Very, very expensive. Uh, And also the increasing social narrative dynamics component of many of these cases where much of society that controls things like your ability to raise funds, whether by selling merchandise on the internet, setting up a GoFundMe, Anything like that, anything having to do with social media or internet action, um, if some portion of the uh, propaganda machine that rises up in many of these cases can make you look so toxic that nobody wants to touch you, you'll be cut off from all those sources of raising money. Uh, Now, in Kyle's case, I don't think this will particularly harm him. I believe they've raised a couple million dollars for his defense, uh, which is pretty darn good. It's probably enough. Maybe not. I don't know. I can tell you the George Zimmerman trial billed out at close to $2 million, uh, by itself. Uh, and I don't think this will be any less involved than that, probably more involved than that case, um, given how much more aggressive these prosecutions have become, even then the Zimmerman case, which was already outrageously aggressive on its own merits. Uh, but just keep in mind, folks, there, there, you may be thinking there are avenues of, that might be available to you to raise money for these legal defenses. Um, it's quite possible those avenues of raising money will be cut off from you. They won't be available to you uh, because you've made to appear toxic. Um, another reason, folks, to consider something like CCW Safe, where you don't need to worry if you're a member about whether you'll have the resources you need to um, – Wage that legal battle the way you want it raised because, uh, let's face it, 
Like any other battle, the more resources you bring in, the better your chances are, all other things being equal. The fewer resources you can bring in, folks, a $300,000, $400,000 legal defense is so overwhelmingly vastly superior to a $30,000 or $40,000 legal defense, it's almost hard to describe the difference. Uh, you want those resources. So again, I would encourage you to at least take a look at what they have to offer. And their coverage is without limit, folks. There's no $150,000, $250,000 limit, which would, that would never cover the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Never. Wouldn't be a tenth of it. Um, so make sure you take a look at what they have to offer. I urge you to do that at lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And again, if you do decide to become a member, you can get 10% off with that discount code LOSD10, Law of Self Defense 10. Okay. Uh, another Kyle Rittenhouse issue. Um, and frankly, I think this is probably favorable to Kyle Rittenhouse, although it may not seem so at first. Um, the prosecutors have decided to add an additional charge to the pile of charges they've already brought against him, including murder. And you think, well, how could that possibly be good? Uh, who wants more charges? Well, the charge they're bringing against them is violation of the curfew that was in place at the time uh, these events occurred. Are you surprised there was a curfew? <laughs> because it certainly didn't seem like it, right? There was scores and scores of people all over the place during the town. So certainly there was no curfew being enforced. Um, but nevertheless, technically, there was a curfew in place that everybody was ignoring, um, especially the violent protesters. And they've decided to charge Rittenhouse with this. Now, it's not much of a charge. In fact, it's not even a criminal offense. It's a civil offense. So at worst, he'd face a fine, like a like a jaywalking ticket. Um, so, you know, he, he could take that hit and it's really nothing. It doesn't influence your life at all. But the fact that they've decided to bring it makes me wonder if they've realized that the charges they've actually brought against him, given the evidence that's available, especially all that video, that those charges are so unlikely to result in a conviction that they'll be so unlikely to be able to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt for each of those three engagements uh, Kyle made against his attackers, that they don't want to find themselves in a George Zimmerman situation where the prosecutors walk away with nothing, no conviction on any charge, nothing. So I think it makes me wonder if they've tossed in this additional curfew charge just in case, as seems likely, they won't get convictions on any of the really heavy felony charges or even a misdemeanor criminal charge, they'll at least have something that they can walk out of the courtroom with and say, well, we held them accountable. We got them convicted of a civil offense. That's a hundred dollar fine. Uh, but at least they wouldn't walk away completely empty handed. Uh, another interesting story here was um, the, I believe it's the San Francisco district attorney, as many of these George Soros uh, funded district attorneys tend to do, has basically announced that there's a whole slew of uh, violent and property crimes that he's simply not going to prosecute. Uh, so you walk into a store, you steal a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff, you walk out, it's not going to prosecute you for that. Uh, drug offenses, uh, certain violent offenses, just not going to prosecute. Uh, so a free-for-all for all those criminals. And... <clears throat> So he's the head prosecutor. He gets elected. All the other prosecutors in the office get uh, get hired. They're bureaucrats. They're civil servants, basically. Um, and they've actually gone to court and filed uh, a motion, filed a request for a judge to order him to not do this. 
now, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, folks. They're not doing this because they care about the normal people living in San Francisco. These are, after all, just other San Francisco prosecutors. Uh, they're doing this because under California law, they may be personally liable if they don't pursue some of these actions. So, for example, one of the uh, things the prosecutor won't go after is the California three-strike type provision. So he he he's ordered his prosecutors not to make strike arguments in court. And his prosecutors are saying, listen, I'm illegally bound to make those arguments if the facts support it, if the person actually does have prior strikes. And by the way, if you get three strikes, it could be life in prison. So it's a big deal for the defendant. Um, and the prosecutors are saying, hey, I, I'm liable if I don't pursue those strike arguments. So please, judge, order the prosecutor to not order us to not do that. Um, but they're, again, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they're afraid of personal repercussions. Folks, that's the way this, the system's supposed to work when we have these runaway um, nut job prosecutors who simply don't want to do their jobs. Uh, the way to build a system is not to hope that you get well-intentioned, good-hearted people who want to do the right thing. Uh, that's good if it happens, but you can't count on that. The way to build the system is so if they don't do the right thing, there are personal repercussions for them. Uh, people will ultimately do what's in their own self-interest. Right now, without any personal repercussions, it's in these prosecutors, these Soros-funded prosecutors, it's in their interest, their political interest, to do exactly what they're doing. These criminals are their constituents. So they're doing favors for their constituents, as any politician would do. Unless there are costs for them built into the system, we're only going to see more of this, folks. They're, they're giving away other people's money, basically, to their constituents. And the cost is going to be more violent crime, more property crime, more law-abiding citizens finding themselves compelled to use force under circumstances that may be on the legal margins and then finding themselves prosecuted and maybe sentenced to prison for the rest of their lives if they're convicted. Okay, so that is all the news items I wanted to touch upon. Let's turn now to the questions that have come in, which, give me just a moment, it looks like I managed to close my little Word document, but I'll pull it right up. And of course, folks, as time permits, I'll answer questions that are submitted live during the show. Uh, so I don't have time to look at the comments while I'm talking about everything else, but I will look at the comments um, before uh, we sign off and pick out some questions to answer as time allows. So I'll scroll through, so feel free to drop those into the comments. Uh, so we did get a great question here from Tony L. Uh, he emailed it in. He wanted me to comment on this shooting that occurred just yesterday in the Capitol. Ashley Babbitt, uh, a 14-year uh, veteran, I believe, of the Air Force, uh, was shot and killed by Capitol Hill police yesterday. Uh, I do plan to comment on that, but this show is – I don't have – I don't have time in this news and Q&A show to do that in detail. So those of you who are law self-defense members should expect a blog post on that probably tomorrow. Uh, I'm gathering up some more of the videos that are available of the event, and I'll do my usual kind of five elements of self-defense analysis of that use of force event, the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. I will caution all of you, however, I will say this much. Um, when you're doing your own analysis of that event, it's very important that you focus on the actual relevant law, by which I mean those five elements of self-defense, and don't allow yourself to be pulled off course by personal um, 
political feelings. Most of us have certain political perspectives. I have my own. They're, they're not secret. They're pretty widely shared. Um, but I have to strip out my political biases and preconceptions when I'm doing legal analysis of a use of force case. I have to look at just the actual relevant facts and the relevant law. I plan to do that in the blog post tomorrow. My legal conclusion may not make some of you happy. Unfortunately, I, I expect I'm going to lose some members over it based on what I know now. But <clears throat> I'll, as I say, I'll be looking at more videos, more relevant evidence before I write the blog post tomorrow. But the way to get into trouble on understanding how self-defense law applies to any particular instance is to allow yourself to get distracted and misled by biases and preconceptions. You have to stick to the actual law and the actual facts and not speculate in an evidence-free way or allow irrelevant facts or knowledge or biases to influence your analysis. So I caution you all to be careful about that. Okay, so we got a question from uh, John N. He's a student in our Law Self-Defense Instructor Program. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. Um, let's see. If any of you would like to learn more about our instructor program, I'm just checking the shortcut URL to make sure it still works correctly. Uh, I believe you can just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash instructor. Yes, that will work. Um, and John's currently a student in that program. We've put a lot of students through that program. To my knowledge, it is the single most comprehensive in-depth but still plain English education and self-defense law available anywhere. It's the equivalent of a law school semester-long class in use of force law. If any law school taught this stuff at that level, which to my knowledge, unfortunately, they don't. Every lawyer should be taking this class, at least every lawyer planning to do criminal defense. Um, but if you'd like to learn more about that, it's at lawselfdefense.com slash instructor. Normally, quite a few people who are um, listening in on the live show uh, – can comment on this. Many of them are instructor program graduates. So if they'd like to share their own experience in the comments. That's fine as well. And again, that's law of self-defense.com slash instructor. Uh, but John asks, he says, uh, I'm currently enrolled in your instructor program. He lives in, doesn't matter what state it is because I can't really get state specific here, but I will be sending John a state specific reply. So John, if you're listening, don't worry, I'll contact you directly. Uh, just as a courtesy for being a student in the instructor program, uh, I'll send you uh, feedback with specific statutes and relevant law and all that to your question. But more generically speaking, he lives in a state where the, the no gun signs do not have the weight of law, criminal law, he's saying, on a private business. So a private business can put no gun signs on its building. Uh, and if you ignore that sign, you see it and you say, oh, to heck with that. You go in anyway. It's not a criminal violation. You have not committed a gun crime for doing that, as some states do, right? In Texas, they have the 30-odd six signs. You violate the sign, you've actually committed a crime. Um, but when you do that, when you violate the terms for entering a private residence or a private commercial building, uh, you are committing a simple trespass. So trespass simply means, it doesn't just mean stepping on someone else's property, it means stepping on someone else's property without permission, which also means in violation of the conditions that they've informed you of uh, for stepping on the property. So any private business is privileged to say, hey, you can't come in here with a gun. It's their private property. If they don't want you in there with a gun, that's up to them. If you step in anyway, now you're present without their permission in violation of their condition. So technically, you're committing at least a simple trespass. 
Um, now, normally, of course, if you're carrying concealed, nobody knows. It's not an event. Nothing happens. Um, but if they become aware that you have a gun and they don't want you there, they can order you out of the store. And if you don't leave the store, you're committing a trespass. I mean, technically, you're already committing the trespass. But normally, if you leave, they'll let it go at that. Um, but what happens if you're doing that? You're engaged in that conduct. You're committing that simple trespass. Um, and then uh, a robbery occurs. And you decide to take your gun out or you're attacked by some lunatic with a machete, whatever the case may be, uh, you end up being compelled to pull your gun using your gun in self-defense. Um, what does that do to your legal justification for having used that gun in self-defense? Um, the answer is it varies by state. Uh, now, in the large majority of states, almost every state, with the exception of four or five, uh, your privilege of self-defense is not conditioned on you not being engaged in unlawful activity generally. There may be facets of your self-defense claim that are conditioned on not being engaged in unlawful activity generally, like stand your ground. Excuse me. About half the stand your ground states, there's 37 now that Ohio has joined, about half the 37 uh, Stand-your-ground states are stand-your-ground by statute as opposed to by court decision. And it's very common for stand-your-ground statutes to have a, as a condition of qualifying for stand-your-ground, being relieved of that otherwise existing duty to retreat, that you not be engaged in unlawful activity. So if you're engaged in unlawful activity, you're dealing drugs on a street corner, or arguably you're committing simple trespass by carrying a gun into a posted private property. Um, so you're, if you're engaged in that unlawful activity, you may not qualify for stand your ground because you violated that condition, but you still qualify for self-defense. Generally, you've just lost that relief from a duty to retreat. You've reacquired that legal duty to retreat if safely possible before you can defend yourself. So normally you, it wouldn't, you, committing the simple trespass wouldn't have any effect on your substantive right to self-defense. Having said that, there are a few states that do condition self-defense itself on not being engaged in unlawful activity. And in that case, you could be in trouble. The prosecution could argue, hey, you don't qualify for self-defense because you were committing trespass. That's unlawful. And therefore, you've violated one of the conditions for self-defense. So the first thing you would need to know is, are you in one of those handful of states? And again, John, I'll, I'll get back in touch with you personally to talk about the, the circumstances in your particular state. Um, so you need to make that determination first. Um, then, of course, I have to also say, listen, I can't, I'm an officer of the court, so I can't encourage anyone to commit even that simple trespass. That's a decision you need to make for yourself, whether the risks are worth the benefits, uh, regardless of whether or not you might lose self-defense generally or not, only you can make that call. Uh, just, you know, be an adult. If you make the call and it goes bad, well, you know, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. That's uh, a decision only you can make. Uh, I got a couple questions here from Scott M um, about excited utterances and statements against interest. These are statements you might make at the scene of a crime and how they might be admissible in court as evidence. But Scott emailed me just before today's show. His daughter got into a little fender bender. So I'm going to delay those questions until next week when he can participate live uh, with the rest of us. Um, got a question from Paul M, a platinum member. Uh, he asks, so in, in most states, you can use deadly defensive force to defend persons or to prevent or stop a forcible felony. And he asks, well, what's that mean? What's a forcible felony? 
Um, so two triggers for a privilege to use deadly defensive force. There's a deadly force threat against yourself or another innocent person, or there's a forcible felony being committed or imminently about to be committed. Uh, so the first category is pretty straightforward. I guess the second category, forcible felony, what's that mean? It seems like an ambiguous, broad statement. Well, some states helpfully have an enumerated list of uh, forcible felonies. So they'll list them out. It'll be things like um, attempted uh, you know, murder, uh, manslaughter, armed robbery, kidnapping. Um, but what they all have in common is that there's baked into the cake of the criminal offense a a deadly force threat. And by deadly force, of course, we mean a force readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. These are all crimes that have baked into the cake a threat against persons. Um, in fact, many of the states that have a helpful enumerated list of fe forcible felonies will also have kind of a catch-all at the end where they'll say, and any other crime that carries an inherent risk of death or serious bodily harm to others. But that's the key there. When we're talking about forcible felonies um, for purposes of privileging the use of deadly defensive force, we're really saying felonies that involve a threat of deadly harm to persons. That means if there is a felony that could involve force in a generic sense, but does not involve a threat of harm to persons, well, then it's not going to be the kind of forcible felony that would trigger that privilege for deadly defensive force. So someone's breaking into your work truck uh, to steal it, and they're using a crowbar, right? Well, obviously, they're forcibly breaking into the vehicle, theft of the vehicle, let's presume for discussion, because of the value of the vehicle would qualify as a felony. In some senses, that's a forcible felony, but it's not a forcible felony in the sense necessary to trigger a justification for the use of deadly defensive force because there's no threat to persons. Uh, we're presuming the van's unoccupied here. Um, if the van were occupied, that would be different. Then you could argue that you're defending the person inside the van, uh, but you're not defending the van, right? Defending the van is just a defensive property scenario. Um, it's not a forcible felony. Defensive property outside of Texas does not justify the use of deadly defensive force. There would have to be some threat to persons. So that's the idea behind forcible felony in the context of justifying the use of deadly defensive force. Uh, Trevor G., also a Platinum member. Thank you very much, Trevor, for your support. Says, I've noticed several of your very long question. Let's see. Um, People, many of my shows, it turns out a defendant was unable to convince jury self-defense because of comments or lack of comments at the scene. Uh, made it appear that uh, undermined their their claim of self-defense, basically. Um, he asks, one of them attacked by an unarmed aggressor, and as I attempt to match fist for fist and shove for shove, so he's using non-deadly defensive force against a what's normally a non-deadly force attack, a barehanded attack. Uh, but as he's doing this, uh, he realizes that his attacker is like standing on a, a ledge, Right. Uh, and if, if the attacker falls off the ledge, he would die. So imagine it's a cliff. Um, well, what if that happens? What if the attacker falls off the ledge? Um, it was only a non-deadly force attack. He was only using non-deadly force in self-defense, but the circumstances were such that the attacker accidentally plummets over the cliff to his death. So now it's complicated, right? Now we have part of the confrontation. The conflict was um, self-defense. A part of it was unintentional, right? 
the responding fist to fist was self-defense, intentional self-defense. The guy going over the cliff and dying was not intentional. That was an accident. Uh, What's the best way to make a statement to 911 that preserves both defense strategies, the legal defense of self-defense and the legal defense of accident, which is a perfectly legitimate legal defense, just like self-defense. What's the best way to make a statement to 911 that preserves both of those and allows my attorney to choose which route uh, to take? Well, he would take both routes, first of all, Trevor. So uh, he would argue self-defense to justify the fist part and accident to justify the over the cliff part. Uh, So he would use a, a separate justification for each of those stages of the fight. Um, but to get back to the question, what's the best way to make a statement to 911 that preserves both? You don't want to do that. You don't want to be making uh, those kinds of detailed legal strategic statements to 911. Uh, they're too complicated. They're too technical. They're too fact specific. There's a reason we hire lawyers to make these arguments for us in court. Uh, in the aftermath of a, a life or death confrontation or even just a fist fight that ends in someone else's death, knowing what the consequences may be for you now from a legal perspective, your mind is highly unlikely to be in an appropriate state to be trying to figure out what to say to 911 about those legal strategies in that context. Uh, many people say don't say anything to 911. I don't know how that works from a practical perspective. I mean, if you've called them, you have to say something. Uh, so we generally advise people to consider, consider, Um, and this doesn't work for everybody. It's not the best strategy for everybody, but to consider what we take the say little approach, which is to say a handful of very specific things to 911 and no more than that. Um, but covering all that, that we spend an hour of our live, uh, in uh, of our full day law, self-defense level one class covering just that, uh, interacting with the police in the aftermath of a use of force event. So obviously we don't have time for that in the last seven minutes we have in today's show. Uh, but I would tell you, if you're trying to figure out some complicated strategy for what to say to 911, you're on the wrong path. Keep things as simple as possible. Don't get complicated. You'll only hurt yourself. Uh, so I'm an, I'm a self-proclaimed expert on self-defense law, right? If I'm involved in a use of force event that results in serious injury or death to another person, I'm not saying anything complicated about legal strategies in my 911 call to responding officers or heaven forbid, to detectives, right? That Those statements are going to be made in a legal environment with legal counsel representing me. All right, so let's see. Uh, Bill asks about the Capitol rioters. Uh, he's a member. I'm looking at the member questions right now, law self-defense members. Bill, I'll try to address that in uh, tomorrow's uh, blog post on this issue. If I forget, just put a comment following the blog post, and I'll be happy to uh, respond. Uh, well, we got a lot of members on the membership page today. That's great. Uh, okay. Let's look at the Facebook comments now. Um, Christopher Williams asks about, uh, ACLDN. ACLDN is Armed Citizen Legal Defense Network. Uh, is that good self-defense organization? A good self-defense organization. I think they're awesome. I love those guys. Marty Hayes, Gila Hayes. Uh, their board is absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's, uh, uh, Masada Yub, it's, uh, Dennis Tuller, it's, um, John Farnham. It's, uh, just, uh, it's full of names of that tier. So fantastic board. Um, they are not backed by a 
large pool of monetary resources. Uh, so the way they work is they have a they set aside a percentage of member annual dues and they collect a pool of money. I have no idea how much money that is. Um, I'd be surprised if it was a few million dollars, but I guess you could call them and ask them. Uh, my concern with ACLDN is not with them personally or with their character or their motivation. I think they're awesome people. My concern is if they were to get hit with several high cost cases in a row, would the resources be there at the end for the next person? Uh, that's a decision you'd have to make for yourself. I mean, again, these cases can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, uh, the other thing is they do make a they make a judgment call on whether or not they want to cover your case. So you don't have blanket privilege to access those legal resources. Their board will look at your case, and if it looks like self defense to them, well, then you can access some fraction of the available resources. But if it doesn't, you get nothing. Uh, now. I respect their board a lot. I think they'd make a good decision, but they are making that decision. Um, and to my knowledge, CCW Safe does not do that. As long as you meet the normal conditions in their membership agreement, they're not making a case-by-case -case call on whether or not to cover you. So whether that matters to you or not, again, that's why I say CCW Safe is not perfect for everybody. Uh, it's it's the best fit for me. Whether it's the best fit for you, you have to make that decision. But ACLDN is certainly an alternative I would encourage people to take a look at. No question about that. Good people. Uh, good program. Uh, let's see. Back up to the top. Hey, Travis, my buddy, motorcycle buddy, Travis, signed in. Rich, nice to see you. Uh, Will Parker, of course. Will Parker is a graduate of law self-defense instructor program. He's up in Kalispell, um, Montana, a beautiful place. Almost Canada. Not quite there. Uh, great instructor. He's hosted me for many classes. Uh, great shooter, too. So if you're up in that area of the woods or can convince him to come to you, um, I would encourage you to reach out to Will Parker. Uh, let's see. Ken asked, do the five elements apply to the police? The five elements of self-defense, those are the five elements, uh, innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. I'll put that free infographic post back up here again, lawofselfdefense.com slash elements. The answer is yes. Uh, in a self-defense claim, the same five elements apply. Um, now, they may apply in a slightly different tone or flavor. So, for example, the element of innocence basically requires that we were not the initial aggressor in the fight. If you're the initial aggressor in the fight, uh, the first person to threaten or use force, you lose the element of innocence, you lose self-defense. So, police are often the initial aggressors in a fight in the sense that they're the first to threaten or use force. Um, in the course of, say, making a lawful arrest of a non-compliant suspect, right? They're going to initiate the use of force if the suspect remains non-compliant uh, in order to compel compliance with the lawful arrest. Now, they're still subject to the element of innocence in the sense that a, an officer is not allowed to initiate any force he wants. He can't just walk up to somebody in a mall and punch him in the face for no reason. The force has to be lawful, meaning it has to be privileged within the scope of his duties. Um, but if it is, he still qualifies for innocence, even though he may have initiated the force, whereas that would not be true for me, a non-police officer. So the elements apply, but they may apply a bit differently than in a police law enforcement context than they would in a non-law enforcement context. Let's see. Got about a minute left. Uh, K 
Ken asks, yes, Ohio Pass, stand your ground. Does our members-only content go through the duty to retreat law? It does. It steps through a detailed discussion of stand your ground, the difference between hard stand your ground and soft stand your ground. It lists the specific hard stand your ground states, which Ohio is one, by the way. Uh, one of those, the stand your ground statute they adopted is hard stand your ground. Uh, explains what those are. It lists the states that are hard stand your ground states with links to the relevant statutes or court decisions as, as seems appropriate. Uh, by the way, I, I caution <coughs> for those of you in Ohio, uh, the law passed, but it does not go into effect until April 4th of this year. So until then, Ohio is still a stand your ground, uh, rather, Ohio is still a duty to retreat state until the law goes into effect on April 4th. All right, folks, the last few seconds of the show, I will take this opportunity to wrap things up. Let me put the big uh, title up here. And to remind all of you that if you carry a gun so that you're hard to kill, which is certainly why I carry a gun, so that I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, uh, well, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so that you're hard to convict. All right, folks, I hope a bunch of you decide to become members, but in any case, I hope to see a bunch of you again next Thursday, uh, January 14th, 4 p.m. Eastern Time for our next Law of Self-Defense live news and Q&A show. I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.